0: Welcome to Jury Duty. I'm your host, Chris Terracone. Season 8 of Jury Duty explores the trial of Alex Murdoch, a member of one of the most powerful families in South Carolina, who is accused of murdering his son, Paul, and his wife, Maggie, with the purpose of covering up a myriad of alleged crimes including fraud and homicide. Before we start this episode, a quick word about another crime story media production, October 2014. Was David Martinez responsible for killing Pomona SWAT officer Sean Diamond? That's at the heart of Night Raid, a new podcast from Crime Story Media. Subscribe or follow wherever you get this podcast. On our first episode of this season, we presented the judge's introductory instructions and the prosecution's opening statement to the Murdoch trial's jury. On this installment, we present the defense opening statement. That's all coming up right after the break. It is January 25th, 2023, the first day of the Alex Murdoch murder trial. As Prosecutor Creighton Waters leaves the lectern after completing his opening, Judge Clifton Newman invites Dick Harputlian to present the opening statement for the defense. Harputlian's hair is gray, his face jowly. He wears a navy blue suit, a white shirt, and a teal and navy blue checkered tie.
1: Ladies and gentlemen of the jury, my name is Dick Harthuglian. I introduce myself to you all and our attorneys, the three other attorneys, Jim Griffin, Philip Barber, Margaret Fox. It is our honor to represent Alec Murdoch, or Murdoch, depending on how you pronounce it. I say it's our honor because I submit to you what you've heard from the Attorney General as facts are not, are not. They're his theories, his conjecture. Alec, stand up. This is Alec Murdoch. And Alec was the loving father of Paul and the loving husband of Maggie. You're not going to hear a single witness say that their relationship, Maggie and Alex's relationship, were anything other than loving. You're going to hear about how they went to a baseball game the weekend before. You're going to hear about their relationship. You're going to see texts and emails indicating a loving relationship. Paul, the apple of his eye. You're going to see a video somewhere between 7.30 and 8 o'clock, the night of the murder. Paul and Alec riding around looking at some trees they planted. It's a Snapchat Paul sent to other people because the trees were not planted very well. They were cantilevering over. They're laughing. They're having a good time. That would be about an hour before the Attorney General says he slaughtered them. When I say he slaughtered them, when they were slaughtered, and no question, Paul Murdoch was shot twice with buckshot, 12-gauge buckshot, once in the chest. And by the way, that shot would indicate it was in the chest and came out under his arm, like somebody that might have been holding up their hands. So when he says no defensive wounds, he perhaps is being held at shotgun. I mean, I can make the same sort of speculation that the attorney general can, because that's all he's doing is speculating. What we do know is 12-gauge, fairly close range shot to the chest. He must have been turned because it comes out under his arm. There's wadding, if you're familiar with the shotgun, under his arm. The second shot ended up, and there's going to be some question about the direction of that shot, but ended up entering his skull cavity and the gases from that shot literally (laughs) exploded his head like a watermelon hit with a sledgehammer. All that was left was the front of his face. Everything else was gone. His brain exploded out of his head, hit the ceiling in the shed, and dropped to his feet. Horrendous, horrible, butchering. So, to find Alan Murdoch guilty of murdering his son, you're going to have to <coughs> accept that within an hour of having a ordinarily bonding, you can see it in the Snapchat, that he executes him in a brutal fashion. Not believable. Not believable. Now, Maggie is shot running. There are no defensive wounds because she's shot running. And after she falls to the ground and has one bullet that has hit her uh, and probably traveled up and hit her brain, she's on the ground, and whoever the perpetrator was walked up, took that AR, and put one in the back of her head. Executed. Executed. Why? This is going to be interesting because we don't know why. He doesn't know why. He's got theories of this and theories of that, but why? Number two, what was it in that hour between when he's yucking it up with Paul? And, and let me say this to you. His record. He was interviewed. He comes home and finds, there's no question about this. They've got telemetry from his car. He left the house at 9.06, returns at 10.01 after seeing his mother who has dementia. Now remember, that day, his father, who is dying, is taken to the hospital. Mom's home alone with the housekeeper perfectly reasonable for him to want to go see her. And later than usual, because his father's not there. He's not, and he dies two days later. His father dies two days later. So the question is, if he leaves at 9.06 and he's back at 10.01, he literally, I mean, and he can account, the cars and the cell phone records account for where he was between 9.06 and 10.01. Now the cell phone records, and you're gonna hear this from their own experts, are incomplete. They're incomplete. And we submit one of the reasons they're incomplete. And by the way, how do they find Maggie's phone? Maggie's phone was thrown out on the side of the road about a quarter of a mile away from, a little bit more, maybe a half a mile, from the Moselle property, thrown out on the side of the road. They found it by using Find My iPhone. And the way they did that, they had to open it or have access. Who gave them the code to open the phone? Now, Myrtle. And it's not destroyed, it's just thrown on the side of the phone. What you're also going to see is that Alec Murdoch was calling that phone at 9:06 as he leaves the house. He did call her twice, and texted her. And we also know that at 9:06, as he cranks his car, as the cell phone records show that, as the telemetry data from the shows the cell phone linking up with the car, that phone is being thrown on the side of the road, almost a half a mile away. Now that is Houdini. That is magic. That is inexplicable. Now, I was making notes while the Attorney General was talking, but let me tell you what is more believable. The night he comes home and finds his wife and son butchered, and when I say butchered, you're going to see these photographs. When I see them now, after having seen them for the last four or five months, it still shocks me. It still is tough to look at. It still bothers me. And he comes home and finds his son laying in his own blood, with his brain laying at his feet, shot to hell. He walks over, he checks to see if there's any life there, and although I mean, seeing his brain laying outside his body, he knows there's nothing there. He goes over and tries to get a pulse out of Maggie. No pulse there. Calls 911. I want you to hear that 911 take. It is a man hysterical in grief trying to figure out what's going on. And he tells the 911 operator that he concerned and he drives the Uh, back up to the house. And by the way, you can't see I've been out there. You can't see the shed. You might see the top of the shed. There are pine trees between the front porch or the porch on the house and the dog pens. And it's not a third of a mile. Maybe by the way the crow flies but it takes a little bit longer to drive down there. And this is not unusual for them to communicate by cell phone or text even when they're all on the same property. It's 1,100 acres. Big property. They hunt it. So what I'm trying to say to you is that the Attorney General has given you his view. And again, you can't see this yet. And I'm going to ask the judge at some point during this trial to ask you, the jury, to be able to go to the scene so you can see it. You can understand the proportions. You can understand the details. Because the facts are what matter here. The facts.
0: Alex Murdoch's defense attorney, Dick Harpudlian, continues his opening recitation to the jury of the evidence that he and his team will present to them during the trial.
1: Let me give you another fact. You're going to hear their witnesses explain the catastrophic injuries to Paul. that His head literally exploded, and whoever shot him with that shotgun was probably no more than three feet away, maybe closer, maybe a little further away. His head exploded. You he would be covered in blood from head to foot in blood. They seized his clothes that night, SLED did. And they tested, well, first of all, you're going to see in the video from the agent, the officers that arrived that night, there's no blood on him. They didn't find any blood on him. SLED's testing indicated 12 different places on his shirt and pants. No human blood detected, period. You'll see pictures. White t-shirt, no blood on it. Those are facts. Those aren't theories. Those are facts. Another fact that is, I think, the reason we're here today. When you hear those questions on the videotapes on the night. Now, he's found his wife and son brutally butchered. You can hear on the 911 tape. He is hysterical. He goes, comes in and out. It's consistent, if any of you have ever. You've you got to use your human, your experience part of this deliberation process. Your human experience, whos ever suffered a catastrophic loss of a friend or a family member, it's numbing. If you see them dead, it's numbing. You go into shock. So anything he said that night is is in the context of just an hour or two before finding his wife and son Butcher. He drove back up to the house while he was on 911 saying, I gotta get a gun. Whoever did this might be out there. And he gets a gun. But what's fascinating about, about that is, he gets a, a 12-gauge shotgun, and he grabs some shells. They, these people hunt a lot. They have guns everywhere. He grabs some shells, grabs a 12-gauge shotgun, put a 12-gauge buckshot in, and then he put a 16-gauge buckshot in. That's how shook up he was. Guy hunted all his life, and he put a shell in that, wouldn't, that he couldn't fire a 16-gauge from a 12-gauge. Makes no sense. He was traumatized. GSR, their own expert as Sweat said, the amount of particles of GSR are consistent, consistent with that, him going up and picking that shotgun up. They want to talk about GSR? Again, if you fired a shotgun twice and a rifle six times, you'd be covered in GSR. Those are the facts. That's not his theory, the facts. Now let's talk a little bit about the ARs. Again, you're going to hear testimony. A lot of guns. They had a gun room. You know, I don't live in Colton County. I live in downtown Columbia. Ain't no gun rooms in downtown Columbia. But apparently if you live on 1,100 acres, and you hunt deer, and you hunt quail, again uh, well, you have a lot of guns. Truth, Truth is, is, in 2017, and you'll hear the testimony, that Alec bought two blackouts, one for Paul and one for Buster, his, his other son sitting out in the audience. audience. And Paul had just stolen. He bought another one for Paul. Now. Paul was very irresponsible with guns, cars. He'd leave guns around, he'd leave guns in cars. He oftentimes left guns down at the uh, at the dog pens, in the feet. Now, I can't tell you whether he was shot with his own weapon or not, or his mom was shot with his weapon or not, but I can tell you that they weren't shot by animals. They don't have the guns. There's no way to tell conclusively, without having the weapons, what weapons those were fired by. And we'll be talking a little bit with the sweat experts about that. The sort of overarching issue here is why murder on June 7th, 2021? Why is it September of 2022 before they charge him? And I'll tell you what happened that night, and this is a problem. He's questioned, and the questioning is pretty aggressive. You'll hear it, he's traumatized they suspect him. They show up, he's got a shotgun. They suspect him. And the next morning, two people found butchered, and here in Colleton County, Moselle Road, the police announced, don't worry, there's no danger to y'all. There's nobody out there that could pose a danger to you. Because, you see, they decided that night, he did it. Without forensics, without cell phones, without any of that. And they've been pounding that square peg in the round hole for the last well, since June of 2021, resulting in charges in September of 22. And so if he felt, and he did, and you'll hear it, the accusatory faction he's being interviewed in, he may not have dealt all the facts. But by the way, whether he'd been down to the dog pens that night or not, really did not matter. Really doesn't matter. Because you're going to see cell phone activity that would be, let me put it to you this way, Paul phone, 850. Maggie's phone, later than that, 8.54, clearly, is still being used. At 9.06, he's up at the house getting in the car, cranking it up to drive over and see his mom. He says, a few hundred yards away, it's a little bit further than that. But the point of the matter is, he would have had to have executed both of them, got back up to the house, got the bloody clothes off. And by the way, they seized his clothes from that night. They'd never searched his house for any other clothes that we know of, although that night, he gave permission and they got a search warrant. Go to my house. Go look through everything. Where are the bloody clothes? Where are the bloody clothes? And of course, I would tell you that they've we woven this story together because they want everything to be consistent. What's important about that is the judge, and, and by the way, there's no eyewitness. There's no forensics tying him to the murder. When I say forensics, fingerprints, blood, whatever, tying him to shooting anybody that night. The cell phone records would indicate he would have had less than 10 minutes to kill him, Get up to the house get in the car and crank it up He'd be covered in blood now if they think he was beginning to establish an alibi there's no evidence of that the evidence is consistent with him seeing them earlier at the dog pen and by the way that audio they have of him and maggie they were talking about one of the dogs killing a chicken and they were debating whether it was a guinea hen or a chicken no animosity very normal discussion paul's very happy and we know that paul after that is texting back and forth to the girl about going to the movies. Nobody's down there threatening him. Daddy's not pulling out a shotgun and killing him. For, you know, 10 minutes after that, he's texting this girl. So, they question. One shooter or two guns, shotgun and an AR. And by the way, Maggie has no defensive wounds because she's running. What's she running from? And could you shoot? Typically she would be, she had a little shed right, probably 150 feet from the feed room on the other side of a wall, perhaps she heard the shotgun blast and came around and saw somebody or two people um, and whoever it was opened up. Was there enough time to kill Paul and then find the AR and then ambush Maggie? Much more likely there were two people, but again, we don't have to prove anything. Let me sort of share the framework in which you should examine this. You have agreed to follow the law and here's the law. Here is the law. He didn't do it. He is presumed innocent. As you sit there right now, as you sit there right now, when you look at him, you have to believe he is innocent. He didn't do it. Now, let me tell you, that's so difficult to do. I get it. And the way, the way, maybe the best way to explain it is this: This morning, or yesterday. Nobody really reads newspapers anymore, but if you're reading the newspaper, looking at the Internet, and you read the police had arrested somebody for some heinous crime, the natural inclination of everybody, all of y'all, is to say, thank God they caught him or her. Thank God that person is in custody. And you did something that's so natural. We all do. it. You presumed the police had arrested person that committed the crime. You presumed him or her guilty. That is the natural thing to do. And you know what? That's fine for you to do any other day except today. Because you took an oath to follow the law. And the law is, he is innocent. He's presumed innocent. That is your presumption. Your mental framework is, he didn't do it. They've got to prove it to me beyond a reasonable doubt. Now, what's even more difficult, and this isn't a contest, this isn't a game, this isn't who wins and who loses, this is about justice. You know, Oliver Wendell Holmes, one of the justices of the Supreme Court, once said, jury duty is the highest duty a citizen can perform for their country in peacetime because you are protecting us from them, from the state, from the government. That's the foundation of our Constitution, is that the individual has the right to be presumed innocent. Has the right to a jury trial. Has a right to have his peer, his or her, peer, his or her peers, in sitting judgment of it. That's you. And the framework is: you presume him innocent, and you don't, cannot convict him until the state proves to you beyond a reasonable doubt of his guilt. And a reasonable doubt is the kind of doubt which would cause an ordinary person to hesitate to act in the more important decisions in their life. Now, what makes this even more complicated is there's no direct evidence. There's no eyewitness, there's no camera, there's no fingerprints, there's no forensics tying him to the crime, none, none. I say that without any fear of contradiction whatsoever, none. And what the judge is going to tell you is to the extent the state relies on circumstantial evidence, the circumstances must be consistent with each other, and when taken together point conclusively to the guilt of the accused beyond a reasonable doubt. If these circumstances merely portray the defendant's behavior as suspicious, the proof has failed. Now, this smoke they've created is about suspicion. I mean, if you show up at the scene, and you got the, well, the wife especially dead, and a guy's got a shotgun, you know, it's pretty logical for the cops to jump to a conclusion. He did it. And the problem is that as they came to that conclusion, they have pounded that square peg in the round hole, and you're going to hear about it. They've ignored some witnesses. Um, I mean, for instance, that blue tarp with the, showed up with a blue tarp. That witness who said he showed up with a blue tarp was shown a blue rain jacket that he talked about. said, that's not it. That's not what he brought here that morning. I mean, that, I talked to her. She said, no, no, no. It, it was a blue tarp. And, and what was I, he? I, I to him, Judge Your Honor. Judge Mrs. I would indicate. Judge sustained. emergency. I would tell you that the, the testimony you're going to hear is inconsistent with the Attorney General's representative to you based on interviews done by people other than me. So, what I'm telling you is this, that as you sit here and listen, every time there's a witness that takes that witness stand that the state's put up there, you see, you judge the credibility, whether to believe a witness or not believe a witness, whether to believe one witness against many, many against one. You're going to have to evaluate the testimony you hear from this witness stand with a critical eye, critical eye. I mean, if you've got Uncontested scientific evidence, he accepted. I've got no problem with that. The cell phone records he keeps talking about, I, I would say to you, are not necessarily accurate to the extent they're reliable. I will also tell you that there's going to be a bunch of people, and I've, I will that have been promised something or threatened with something that may take the witness stand and say something, but I tell you what, they're not going to say. They're not going to say they saw him kill him. They're not going to say uh, that they were involved in it. They're not going to say anything uh, that would give you a comfort level in their testimony. Now, all of you have indicated that you will follow the law. And I say this one last time. He didn't do it. He didn't kill Butcher, his son and, and wife. And you need to put from your mind any suggestion that he did. You've been picked because you said you could be fair. You were picked because he said you could follow the law. You were picked because Alec Murdoch believes that you can be fair. Now, if during this process over the next however long we're here, I say something or do something, most certainly based on my career, I will do that irritates you or angers you. Sometimes I'm a little rough. Don't hold that against Alec. Hold it against me. If I say something that offends you in some way, don't hold that against Alec. Hold it against me. Remember, as you sit there right now in your mind, he didn't do it. He is innocent. He would require a verdict of not guilty from
0: you. That's the law. That's your oath. Thank you. And with that, we bring to a close this episode of Jury Duty, the trial of Alex Murdoch. Please join us on our next installment as we begin our coverage of witness testimony in the trial. Also check out the new Crime Story podcast, Night Raid, wherever you get your podcasts. And, if you would like to listen to these episodes early and ad-free, head over to our Jury Duty Crime Story Patreon page. You can find more information about this trial on our Jury Duty Crime Story Patreon page or at crimestory.com. Jury Duty is created and produced by Carrie Antholis. It was co-produced and edited by yours truly, Chris Terracone. Music for this episode was provided by Strike Audio. Thank you for joining us and we hope you will come back for the next episode of Jury Duty.